Welcome to series two of Dead Good Staffordshire with me, Charlotte Foster. Now, this podcast is where we talk about death and dying. Yeah, topics that not many of us really want to have conversations about, but we know we should be talking about them. Well, these podcasts are about having those honest conversations and having them now. Talking about dying won't make it happen any sooner, I promise. Not talking about it might make it actually harder. It's Dying Matters Awareness Week in the UK this week and the Dying Matters Staffordshire team have a number of events taking place. You can find out more on the Facebook page, just search for Dying Matters Staffordshire. The theme for this year is Are We Ready? Well, that's something I've been talking to Catherine Mannix about. Hopefully you would have heard last episode. If you haven't, go back and listen to the part one of my interview with Catherine. Catherine is a retired palliative care consultant and now author. She's written a book. It's called With the End in Mind, all about her experiences caring for people at the end of their life and their experiences dying. So in this part of the interview, I asked her, how we can help people who have a terminal illness and who have been given a timeline, like a life expectancy of how long they've got left to live. And can we ever get people ready for dying and could potentially cognitive behavioural therapy come into play in this scenario? Two things to say about that. The first thing is that giving somebody an actual timeline is a disaster because you can only predict life expectancies from graphs of whole populations. And you don't know where about in that graph that individual person's dot is. So I meet people who are absolutely terrified because they were given six months to live five months and three weeks ago. And they're still out and about, they're doing their shopping, but they think they're going to die next week. Or you meet families who are so aggrieved because the doctor said um, that he he had a year to live and he only lived three months and, you know, that's terrible and we weren't ready. And so um, predicting life expectancies is itself a tricky thing. And we know that doctors are really bad at it, including palliative care doctors. We're all really bad at it. And we almost always are on the side of thinking people are going to live longer than they're actually going to live. So we're overly optimistic, usually. So the way we guesstimate is to look at how somebody's changing over time. You know, we talked before about people getting more weary. Well, that's one of the really good indicators, but it's not a blood test. And it hasn't got a kind of gold star um written up in medical journals test thing it's simply wisdom and observation that if the person is still as well and perky this year as they were last year you're probably still measuring their life expectancy in years but if you're seeing a change from one month to the next in terms of how much energy they've got you're probably measuring in months maybe enough months to make a year but not years and years And as time goes by, you'll start to see a change week by week. And then you're measuring in weeks into months. So I beg doctors not to give a number, but but actually share this wisdom of this is how you'll know when things are changing. And actually, 
thing that I used to say to my patients is when time is getting short, I think you will tell me. You will feel it. And then we'll think about it together. So I promise I'll be honest with you, but I'm not going to make wild guesses. And when I was working in oncology, I had patients who so much and family so much wanted me to give them a number. And they persist so much in asking for that that I think sometimes doctors get so tired of trying to defend a position of I can't tell you that they, they'll say, well, I don't know. It'll be somewhere like in three to six months, <gasps> three months. Three months, the doctor said three months, because they always hear the worst news. Of course, we're over-prognosticating, so maybe the worst part of the guess is the most accurate part of the guess. But really, if we can ha help people to stop asking for a number and help doctors to stop giving a number, that would be a great start. Once people know that time is limited, I think that something happens in terms of you have an adjustment period when anything difficult happens. Well, you just feel horrible. You wake up every morning and you think, oh, there's something awful. It's like, oh, God, yes, I, I've got this illness and I might not be going to get better. And it might be that I'm not going to see Christmas. And, and then they start to rehearse all of the losses that that involves. So I'm not going to get to have children or I'm not going to see my grandchildren or I'm not going to see my kids grow up. Um, I'm not going to finish my novel you know, whatever it is that's important to that person suddenly gets thrown into very sharp relief. So there's a period of intense emotional distress and mourning that's absolutely appropriate and that we shouldn't be trying to um, use psychological techniques to stop people from doing that. That's part of the processing that's absolutely normal. And in people who have an illness that has... Uh, different stages they might go through that several times so if you're a young fit person who has a heart attack and now suddenly you're a cardiology patient you will mourn the loss of seeing yourself as a person who is completely fit and well um, and if you're a person who finds a breast lump or an axillary lump and you turn out to be a, a, a woman or a man who's got breast cancer because men get breast cancer too now suddenly you're into the throes of I'm not the perfect specimen I thought I was. I've got this really serious illness. I've got to have all of this treatment and it may or may not save my life. Um, or you might be, you know, five years out from your diagnosis and you've been coping really well. And now you get metastatic disease and you've got to go through that process. So the whole of life is in, is involved in these adjustments to change expectations and not just illness you know failing an exam not getting a job all of those things we get lots of practice in giving up things that we'd really hoped for and illness and good health is another one of those but there are some people who get stuck and they aren't able to come out of that period of intense emotional distress to a place of living with that in the background of their lives. And under those circumstances, cognitive therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, variety of different ways of approaching it can help people to get to a place where they are able to say, yes, it's true of me that I've got this really serious illness, but it's also true of me that I'm a person who um, loves reading or 
likes to go out bird watching or likes really loud banging music and I can still do the things that give me joy even though I might not be able to continue to do it for as long as I hoped to so it's something that's called adjustment and it's a really important process a lot of people talk about reaching acceptance I've never ever been able to understand what acceptance actually is I think you come to a point where instead of it being a boulder that you can't move it's a pebble in your shoe and a pebble in your shoe is small but it hurts you and it reminds you that it's there quite a lot of the time but it doesn't stop you from doing the things that you want to do does, does that sound yeah. like a sensible analogy yeah I'll be honest um it's every now and again I'll almost be kind of a wave of just one day you're going to die will hit me and it, mm. it, it knocks my breath away sometimes mm. and I'll be and I'll just sit down for a minute and just go oh and it, it's some and I don't I don't know where it's come from if it's a natural survival instinct mm. I still I feel like I'm at boulder stages but I don't have any real reason to be at boulder stage if that makes sense other than that of course we're human yes and it's part of the human condition. And every now and again, different features of the fact that we're human, including our mortality, will, will come up and, and, and hit us in the face. And actually, one of the things really interesting talking to patients, you know, so the, the lovely people I've worked with who are now at the very end of their lives, is that it doesn't seem to be like that boulder once they're really dealing with it. What they're doing is kind of sitting on top of it and surveying the wonderfulness of everything else um, and I don't mean everybody becomes saints before they die but you do meet people whose composure and wisdom and ability to celebrate every lovely little thing that happens is quite extraordinary and I used to think that that was exceptional but I started to notice that actually in their own way Almost everybody who realises that the end of their life is coming does that thing of seeing how incredibly precious and special the little things are. And the little things are actually the big things and that stuff doesn't matter. And that's, that's extraordinary, but it's also very reassuring to me to have seen it so many times and realise that that is also part of the human condition. So early in our lives, we'll be appalled by the idea that we're mortal. But when we're actually facing our mortality, we almost push that aside like a curtain and look past it to what really matters. And it's, it's poignant, it's bittersweet, because we're seeing the end of it approaching. But there's something about it being so much more precious for realising that it's not permanent. And I, I think I wrote, I can't remember the phrase I use now, but in the book, something about Living is so precious and it's made more precious by having the fact that we're more still in mind. I'm going to ask a personal question. How scared are you of dying? I'm, I'm not at all scared of dying. I'm not at all scared of people who I love dying in terms of will the process be awful and terrible? I, I know what dying looks like and it doesn't frighten me. I prefer to be alive for the moment. I've got lots of uh, wonderful things going on in my life and I would like to see my young people through their adulthood I would like to meet my grandchildren um, but the, the the idea of dying the process of dying doesn't 
doesn't frighten me at all. I've seen it, well, I, I don't know how many thousands of times, but prob probably I've been involved in more than 10,000 people's care at the end of their lives. Because one doctor works with a huge number of nurses in a team who then each have their caseloads. So I haven't sat by the bedsides of 10,000 dying people, but I've certainly been the doctor who would have been sent for if it was going wrong. And I've sat with hundreds or thousands of people as they've died. Um, and I've seen some unpleasant ones, you know, maybe 10, a dozen unpleasant to the point where I think, oh, this is really horrible. I would hate this to happen to somebody that I loved or happened to me. But out of 10,000, that's, the, the, you know, the probability is very, very small. Um, the existential idea of not existing, I think that's something that, because it's just completely imponderable, that's a little bit mind-blowing. But it's mind-blowing in the same way that trying to contemplate the size of a of a, a universe that is infinite is mind-blowing. Um, or trying to contemplate, for people who believe in an afterlife, an eternity is mind-blowing. Um, so, yeah, every now and again, I have that kind of boggling moment that you have, but it's thinking about annihilation or it's thinking about eternity or it's thinking about infinity. Um, and you just can't get your mind around that idea at all. But it's not a fear. It's a kind of wonder. It's a, I just can't imagine even how to think about thinking about something of that magnitude. I think that's some of the problem, isn't it? It's people aren't necessarily scared of dying. It's also the scared of what happens, what doesn't happen, what happens, the mm. existential part of it. To how obviously we don't know what it's like to be not born because we weren't born. We've only ever known being. And I think it's that yeah. what happens. I think that's it. We're going into all kinds of philosophy and stuff here, aren't we? Which it is quite interesting meeting people who've got quite um, quite clear philosophical or religious beliefs. So people who have um, a belief system that they've worked through and that is a good fit for them, and they might be Buddhists or they might be Christians or they might be um, atheists but they know what they think and what they think gives them a comfort and it gives them a yardstick to live their lives within. And then you meet most people who haven't really thought about it, um, who are registered as Church of England, perhaps because they didn't have a religion at birth and it was required to be written somewhere. And I think we don't have to do that anymore. Um, or, you know, my, my, my parents were Catholic, but I don't go to church, that kind of thing, um, who now haven't got a kind of philosophical, I was going to say worldview, but maybe what I mean is after worldview that frames their lives. And they don't know whether they believe or they don't believe. And if they don't believe, well, what would that be like? And if they did believe, but they find that there is God and they haven't lived by the rules and what would that mean so actually um, a kind of lukewarm religion is not much of a comfort and can be quite a discomfort towards the end of life where the fervent worldview 
and being able to say, well, I've, have I lived my life according to that worldview? Um, and that might be being an environmentalist or it might be being a religious person or it might be being a humanist. So it isn't about afterlife. It's about values. Enables people to think, yeah, I, I can look back and think that mainly I've lived in a way that's congruent with my beliefs. And that as I'm kind of packing to leave now, I can feel that I've I've lived a good life. I've lived a virtuous life by the beliefs that I believe in. And clearly for people whose beliefs include an afterlife, then they are comforted by the idea that having lived a virtuous life by the standards of their beliefs, they're likely then to be going to an afterlife that's also good. And I meet some people who are quite excited about the idea of all of the people who've died before them that they're going to see. They're, you know, you know, quite thrilled at the idea that their dead husband will be waiting for them or they're going to see their parents again or um, particularly that they're going to see children who've died before them again. It's very, very touching and it's lovely to see that that belief brings them some consolation, but it's not a belief that they could give to anybody else. It's a very, very personal thing. It's really interesting to see. You said that you had lots and lots of stories from mm-hmm. from your time. Is there any story in particular that affected you the most or maybe you learned from the most or the one that just sort of stands out for you that, that you can share? The story that probably changed the way I've practised medicine is in the book. Um, so I, by the time I went, first went to work in a hospice, I'd been qualified for more than four years and I'd worked largely in medicine hospital medicine and cancer settings and I'd worked in our regional cancer center as well so I'd seen a lot of people die Um, and I had wanted to be an oncologist and then just found that I was much more interested in the people who weren't going to get better than in finding the cure for cancer Um, so sorry cure for cancer but somebody else will have to find that And um, so I moved sideways then and went to work in a hospice and thinking I knew quite a lot, discovered that I knew absolutely nothing about managing symptoms and those sorts of things. That was very humbling. Um, And we had this wonderful patient who was an elderly French lady who fought in the French resistance in the Second World War. And she was just amazing imperious and self-contained and we were all just a little bit frightened of her I think and she had bowel cancer and it was quite widely spread and she was dying and her husband had died of a heart attack about 10 years before and they'd never had children so she was in the hospice because we were trying to um, manage her uh, pain from her spread of her cancer and it'd be very easy to contain in fact and as is often the case when people are very worried about pain it kind of amplifies even a little bit of pain so dealing with her anxiety had helped and mainly she was taking paracetamol for her pain so she didn't need big guns drugs at all but she told one of the nurses that she was terrified about dying because if she had horrible pain at the end of her life she might despair And if she despaired, that would be a mortal sin. 
and mortal sin means you can't go to heaven. And she was so sure her husband would be in heaven that she would be separated from him for eternity by this act of despair caused by terrible pain on her deathbed. So that's pretty huge existential anxiety. So this nurse came and told our boss, the director of the hospice, and he said, oh, well, I'll, I'll go and talk to her. And he said to me, you, you'll find this interesting. You come along. And I, I thought he was going to go and do a pain chat with her. So I wasn't quite sure why he wanted me to come because, you know, I knew about pain. Um, what a big head. So this is another, another kind of humbling experience. So we went along and he sat down to chat with her. And I sat on one of those little stools by the bed where I could see her. And what he did was he, he did a little bit of pain chat about how things had been and that they weren't likely to get much worse just because she was dying wouldn't make a pain change. Um, and he said to her, I, I wonder whether it would help you if I describe what to expect when you're dying. And I thought, what? You, you can't you can't do that you can't say that and and she said oh yeah that would that would be helpful so he then did that description about the process of normal dying getting more tired waking and sleeping and breathing changes and as he carried on talking i'm sitting there thinking he's got to stop in a minute surely he's not going to go to like the very last breath that a person takes and at the same time, as I'm feeling more and more uncomfortable as he's describing this process, which I've never heard described before, she is sitting further and further up in bed, eyes locked on his, completely mesmerised by hearing him describing this because she'd seen her husband die exactly like this unconscious after his heart attack 10 years before and the only other death she'd ever seen was somebody who died from gunshot wounds during the war so he's describing this process and I'm sitting there feeling really really uncomfortable but also listening to him and thinking do you know what this is absolutely right I've never thought about it like a process before I've always been the busy junior doctor trying to stop the dying from happening. And so close to the patient, they're so busy opening ampules and shouting orders and sticking venous lines in, that I haven't stood back to see that this that he's describing, this is exactly the process that I have seen hundreds of times. But my goodness, I didn't realize that it was actually a similar thing from person to person. And when he'd finished, she just relaxed. She kissed his hands and thanked him, which was really moving. And then, you know, we were dismissed and we went off back down the corridor. By then, you know, I'm just leaking from my eyes and speechless. And I went to make a cup of tea because that's what you do. Um, but brewing that tea, I can remember thinking that was mind blowing. And what was mind-blowing was not just that he had described a process that absolutely was true, but I'd just never noticed it before, but that it had given her enormous comfort rather than reassuring her that things would be okay. 
He'd given her all the information she needed to know that things would be okay. And that that had really, really taken her to a place of serenity and understanding. And that we can do that for people. The more people know, the less there is to fear. And because he was very experienced, he was describing it with complete honesty. And she knew she could, from his body language, he wasn't just saying, I want you to believe it's like this. What he was saying was, this is what we see. This is what we see time and time again. And as he was saying it, I was thinking, yeah, that is what we see. Oh, my goodness. Which meant that I now have been able to adapt that script to be able to tell people with my integrity, this is what we see. And to tell medical students, this is what you're going to see. And to start off with when you need to explain it to people, you have to say, this is what people who've seen it lots of times tell me. But eventually you will flip to that place as a practitioner where you can say, this is what we see. I hope you enjoyed listening to me talking to Catherine. It isn't always the easiest thing to talk about. I do appreciate it and isn't always the easiest thing to, to hear either. But definitely these are the conversations we really need to be having now lots more discussions going on on social media like i say don't forget the dying matters staffshire team they've got their facebook page you can also check out the podcast at twitter it is dead good staffs is what you're looking for on twitter there's one more final part to come of my chat with Catherine. So keep an eye out for that. If you want to make sure you don't miss it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll talk to you next time.